Amen. Thank you, Sister Lizzie, for the beautiful um, special number. So we could get started right away. Would everyone please stand up and join me as we uh, read the first saying in Luke chapter 23, verse 34. Uh, can I get an amen when everyone's ready? Amen. amen. Okay, we can read it all together. Uh, ready? Begin. Then said Jesus... Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they parted his raiment and cast his lots. Okay, let's pray. Our dear Lord, my Father, just want to thank you, Lord, for this day. Just want to thank you, Lord, for this opportunity uh, that me and my fellow brethren here are able to um, teach about your seven sayings. Lord, just please, Lord, give us wisdom and guidance as we uh, present your word this uh, evening, and that will be a blessing. Uh, we just forgive, forgive us from our sins and shortcomings and give us the right words to say. And uh, in your name we pray, amen. Okay, would everyone please be seated? Uh, so uh, we'll just start off with the first point already. The first point is going to be that uh, while Jesus was on the cross, Jesus prayed to God the Father. Um, it, so I'm actually going to go back and read verse 33 because I believe it actually has some important context uh, to this. And verse 33 says, And when they were come to the place which is called Calvary. Uh, there they crucified him, the male factors, one on the right and the other on the left. So uh, the reason why it's important is because it shows uh, right before Jesus prayed to God the Father, uh, his, his prayer, first he was brought up to the, already to Calvary. Uh, he was already being prepared to be set up on that cross. He was nailed on that cross. And as he was being lifted up along with the two other men, uh, I, I could imagine that I could see uh, him looking down at all the people, the people who are mocking him, those Roman soldiers who were um, gambling for his clothes. And the first thing that goes through his head is to pray to God the Father, saying, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Um, and uh, it may be a short prayer, but it's a very powerful prayer. But the question is, why did Jesus uh, pray to begin with? It's, because, it's not like us where we pray to God for permission or because we don't know anything. It is because God the Father and God the Son are connected already. And it's more of like a, a father or a parent-to-child relationship that he has going on with um, God the Father. And um, we see here that uh, he's consistent with always talking and being in communication with God the Father. It's not just only in this instance, but if you look through the four Gospels, we always see that he's always praying to God. So the examples that we can see here, uh, we can go chronologically from the beginning of his ministry in Luke chapter 3, 21 and 22. I won't be reading all these, but just for reference, this is starting at his baptism with John the Baptist. Then we move to Luke 6, 12 and 13, where he prays all night before choosing his 12 disciples. We move next to John 11, 41 and 42, uh, where he raises Lazarus from the dead. He prays to God the Father. Once again, in John 17, 1 through 26, he prayed for himself and his disciples and all the believers just before heading to Gethsemane and in Matthew 26, 26 at the Lord's Supper. Um, let's see, all right. Uh, and then uh, G G Jesus shows a perfect example here of always being in communication and always praying with God the Father. And just like how it says in... Um, sorry, in First Thessalonians... 
5 and 17. Go there. Uh, basically, it says to continue to pray without ceasing. And as Christians, I believe that Jesus shows a perfect example of what we should be doing and that we should always keep that example to heart, that no matter what situation we, in, we are in, whether it be good or bad, that we're continually praying to God. Um, and, uh, and then now I want to move on to our second point, which shows that uh, now when Jesus prayed, did he pray for himself? No. He didn't pray for himself, but he prayed for everyone there, including all of us today. It was a very selfless prayer about forgiveness. Um, it is God the Father who grants forgiveness, and it is based on the completed work of Jesus Christ, from his death to his burial to his resurrection. According to Mark 2, 5 and 7, it says that only God can forgive. Uh, and without forgiveness, there is no salvation. So why do we need forgiveness? Because according to, according to Romans 3.23, we're all sinners. And our sin, um, and this is sin that we are born with. Um, it's because of what happened back in Genesis chapter 3. When we go back to the first count of sin, we see that Adam and Eve committed the first sin there. And because of that sin of disobedience from Adam and Eve, we were all doomed to be separated from God for eternity. But instead of leaving us in our sin to rot and to be separated completely from God, God created a plan for us to be with him for all eternity, and that was through the completed work of Jesus Christ. But before forgiveness, there is another important step that happened first, and this is what leads us to our final point, uh, and it was love. Because Jesus died on the cross because he loved us first. Um, in 1 John 4.19, we read, we love him because he first loved us. And it's important to know because, uh, at least for in a human standpoint, um, before we can truly forgive, we always need to be able to get over. We need to be able to feel compassion towards the other person that we need forgiveness from. And um, here in Genesis 3, God really shows that first because forgiveness came because forgiveness came because God loved us. God loved us so much that he tried or that he found a way for us to be with him for all eternity. And that was through the forgiveness through uh, Jesus's blood. Um, uh, let's see. And as previously stated in Romans 3.23, we are all born sinners no matter if we like it or not. And according to Romans 6.23, exactly three chapters away, we see that the, for the wages of sin is death. That means that we were all meant to die in our sinless eternity and hell away from God. But as we can see what happened on the cross, the verse continues, um, that the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Uh, and then we read that in John 3.16, that for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son and that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. And with that, we see that the entire plan of salvation is completed just on the cross. Just in the very beginning, we see that of the first saying, we already see that forgiveness is already there. And without forgiveness from God the Father, there's no way we can ever be, um, we can ever be with him for eternity. Um, and we also see that it's also in Acts chapter, hold on. 16 verse 31 all we need to do to receive this gift and forgiveness is to believe we just need to believe in the lord jesus christ and thou shalt be saved it only takes belief it doesn't take works it doesn't take anything else all we need 
is first to believe through Jesus. And according to Ephesians 6, 2, 8, and 9. Is it Ephesians 6? Oh, sorry. Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. For by grace are ye saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is a gift of God. And importantly in verse number 9, not of works, lest any man should boast. Um, and through this, we see that the completed work is done, and it brings us all the way back around to John three sixteen, to the death, the burial, and the resurrection of God and of Jesus Christ on the cross for our sins. Um, I hope that this short message was a blessing to you and that the Easter we won't forget the love and forgiveness that was given to us on this cross this very day. Thank you. In church, um, and this is the second saying. Uh, Luke 23, verse 40, uh, 43, And Jesus said unto him, Verily I say unto thee, Today shalt thou be with me in paradise. And to explain this verse, we have to look through Luke 23, verses 39 to 43. And one of the male factors which were hanged railed on him, saying, If thou be Christ, save thyself and us. But the other answering, but the other answering rebuked him, saying, Dost not thou fear God, seeing thou art in the same condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we receive the due reward of our deeds. But this man had done nothing amiss. And he said unto Jesus, Lord, remember me when thou comest into thy kingdom. And Jesus replied, and Jesus said unto him, the verse that we're, I'm mainly talking about, Verily I say unto thee, today shalt thou be with me in paradise. Now, the context of these verses, Jesus is on the cross and he's being crucified. And there are two criminals with him also being crucified. One criminal questions Jesus, and we can see this in verse 39. He says, if thou be Christ, save thyself and us. He's saying, if you are the Son of God, if you are Jesus Christ, then save yourself and us from the situation that we are in. He's doubtful of Jesus, and he's testing Jesus. He questions why won't he just save himself and them from the suffering that they are enduring right now. But there's also another criminal. And he acknowledges that they deserve the punishment, but not Jesus, because he did nothing wrong. In verse 41, for we receive the due reward of our deeds. He's saying that the first part, we receive the due reward of our deeds. He's saying that we deserve what we did because of the deeds that we have done. But this man, he's saying that this man, Jesus, had done nothing amiss. He's done nothing wrong. And this criminal, he knows that Jesus did nothing wrong. And he just asks for one thing, just one thing, and that's what to be remembered. The verse 42, he says, Jesus, Lord. He calls Jesus, Lord, and he says, Lord, remember me when thou comest into thy kingdom. Remember me when thou comest into thy kingdom. And Jesus responds, today shalt thou be with me in paradise. I would love to be in paradise with Jesus. Amen? And I just want to talk about the approaches that these two criminals had. One criminal <clears throat> with faith and one criminal with doubt. 
The first criminal, he shows doubt towards Jesus, and he tests Jesus. But notice how he, Jesus doesn't respond to the first criminal. He doesn't have to prove himself to the first criminal. But when the second criminal, the second criminal knows that Jesus did nothing wrong. He acknowledges what they've done, and he, he knows that he got what he deserved, but he knows that Jesus did nothing wrong. Jesus, knows, Jesus did nothing wrong. And he believes in Jesus. He calls Jesus Lord. He asks, he asks Jesus. He says, Lord, remember me when, when thou comest in, into thy paradise. Or, no, cometh into uh, thy kingdom. When Jesus heard the cry of this criminal, when Jesus heard that this criminal was calling Jesus Lord, when he heard the cry of the believer, he answered immediately and he said, in verse 43, today shalt thou be with me in paradise. No matter, he didn't question the criminal what he did to deserve the crucifixion, but Jesus heard the cries of the believer and he responded. He didn't ask any questions. Jesus will remember him when he enters the kingdom of heaven, and he will also bring him in paradise. It doesn't matter what you have done, but when you cry to Jesus, acknowledge what you have done, and ask for forgiveness. Jesus will make us anew. First John, verses 7 through 9, but if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanseth us with all sin. If we say that we have no sin, we have deceived ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all righteousness, unrighteousness. This world is full of sin. But if we repent of our sins, and we believe in God, and we cry out to him, then we shall be in paradise with Jesus. The suffering in this evil, broken world, the suffering, the pain, the sorrow, and the misery is worth it because in the future, we will live in paradise with Jesus. With Jesus in our hearts, Philippians 4, verses 13, verse 13, I can do all things through Christ which strengthens me. Joshua 1, verse 9, Have I not commanded thee, be strong and of good courage. Be not afraid, neither be dismayed. For the Lord thy God is with thee, whithersoever thou goest. So, yes, this is a sinful world. We may suffer a lot, feel pain, sorrow, but if we repent our sins and we truly cry out to the Lord, Lord God shall strengthen us and be with us whithersoever thou goest. Second time doing this. I do not know Spanish, so that's the last Spanish you'll hear for today. <laughs> uh, this is going to be uh, my second time, and I'm going to be reading the third saying, and it is in John 19, uh, 26 to 27. John 19, 26 to 27. Uh, I'll read it now. When Jesus therefore saw his mother and the disciples standing by whom he loved, he saith unto his mother, Woman, behold thy son. Then saith he to the disciple, Behold thy mother. 
and from that hour, that disciple took her onto his home. So just a short summary in case like people didn't understand it. Uh, Jesus was dying on the cross and saw his earthly mother Mary and one of his disciples, John, right beneath him. And he looks at both of them and has Mary become part of John's family, so John will be able to take care of her in his stead. So just ask a question, and what is Jesus really saying during this? And at this time, Jesus was dying on the cross, and even through all that pain, he was still concerned for his mother, and he wanted to provide for her even during his death. Even like thinking throughout all the torture and how long he's been suffering, he wanted to make sure his mother, who was probably just thinking of his suffering and not even thinking of where to go for her life next, she, he was thinking of her at his most painful time. And <clears throat> while most of the seven sayings show his relationship with the Heavenly Father, this one is showing his love for his mother and the relationship they had with each other. And he would still take care of her even when his death was calling. Now, there's something uh, strange you might have seen while reading this verse, is that he calls Mary woman instead of mother, or even Mary herself. So, it's not out of any disrespect for her, but it's because at that time, hearing mother for Mary would have been the most heartbreaking thing, because she couldn't protect her son from this fate. He, so, he wants to protect her from hearing even worse things about it. Because if he calls her mother, that's just cutting deeper and deeper into her grief. So at that time, he just directs his looks to John and behold him as thy son. So he wants him, her to be a mother to John now and to start their relationship too. And this was a great honor to put upon John and a testimony both to who he is as a person and how much Jesus trusts him. Because <clears throat> he knows <clears throat> that John loved him and he also knew he would also love Mary and take care of her too as Mary's guardian. And it's a great honor for him to be employed by Christ and to just be entrusted with the interests of, that he had. And now for a second question, as why did he say it? So you can notice the care Jesus took for his dear mother, and he didn't care about suffering, and it's also his responsibility as the firstborn son of Mary. Because Jesus is responsible for her welfare and ensuring that she has a place to live and food to eat during her widowhood. Because at this point, uh, his father, is, or uh, his earthly father, is gone by this point, as most people would say. So Jesus makes sure that she's taken care of. And at that point, it's fair to say that John's her son now. And that's starting the relationship between them that they can also keep going and be safe in their stead. Because once Jesus dies, they are in trouble. There is nothing left for them to go forward to. And Mary has no home to go to at that point. So John is, so Jesus appoints John and making sure that they're both safe. So as a third question, I went why, what, I went what, why, and now what again? <laughs> so what should we do because of this? And and the most important thing of learning from this is to love for a family. Because in Jesus' last moments, he took care of his mother. He wanted to make sure he was, she was safe and made sure to have her in John's care. He even starts a new relationship, even has, stops calling her mother just so that she can start a brand new relationship with John, just to try and protect her even more. Even in his last moments, he's caring for her, and it shows how much that love meant to him. And just to say... Uh, Never forget, in 
Exodus 20:12. You might remember this verse if you are parents. <laughs> yeah. Exodus 20:12. If you're there, honor thy father and thy mother that thy days have be long upon the land which the Lord may g- thy God giveth thee. Good evening. So we are now in the fourth saying. It is in uh, Mark chapter 15, verse 34. Yes. It says, And at the night, and at the night, I'm sorry, and at the night hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, saying, Eloi, Eloi, Lama Sabaktani, which is being interpreted. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? It is difficult to understand this verse. Why Jesus said, My God, my God, why does, why how thou forsaken me? There are three possible reasons. The first one is Jesus was quoting Psalm 22, verse 1. It says, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Why art thou so far from helping me and from the words of my roaring? This is the cry for help. Jesus was crying for help. Remember, he was hanging there for six hours already. And then, there is another three hours of darkness, so it's nine hours. He's hanging there for nine hours on the cross. The second possible uh, reason why Jesus said, My God, my God, why thou hast forsaken me, is that Jesus was fulfilling the great messianic psalm 22. This great psalm runs throughout the whole crucifixion narrative. It is interlinked throughout the crucifixion story because it foretells the crucial events in the crucifixion of Jesus. Jesus was not a Jewish martyr. He was the suffering servant of Yahweh who laid down his life freely. And the third reason is God has forsaken Jesus. But why? So why did God forsake in Jesus? There's no doubt and I believe on this third possible reason. It is difficult to comprehend why Jesus, the only begotten Son of God, sinless, innocent, obedient, harmless, undefiled, was forsaken by God. Let's remember and let's, let's know who God is. Remember, God is holy. In 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 16, it says, Because it is written, Be ye holy, for I am holy. Holy means pure, perfect in morality, and free from any blemish. God is holy 
means he hates sin. Sin in the Bible describes as putrefying sore or decaying sore, abiding death, darkness, scarlet stain, blinds the truth. Sin slave us. Sin destroy us and lessen our love to God. God is holy and because he's holy, he has to punish sin. And it's in Romans 6.23, it says, For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So for the wages sin is death. Death cast into the lake of fire. It says in Revelation 20, chapter 20, verse 14, it says, And death and hell were cast in the lake of fire. And this is the second death. If you've seen, if you have seen, the wages is death. And death, it says in the end, will be cast into the lake of fire. Death means separate, separation from the holy God. Means casting into the lake of fire. But remember, God is also love. He makes the way for mankind not to be separated from him. In John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth on him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. God give us a savior, the Messiah, the one who is going to carry our sin or pay the wages of sin. So the answer why God forsaken Jesus is because it is in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. And it says, For he hath made him to be seen for us, who knew no sin, that he might be made the righteousness of God in him. In Isaiah chapter 54, Verse 4 to 5, it says, Surely he had borne our griefs, he carried our sorrows, yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions, he was buried for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. And in Galatians chapter 3, verse 13, he was being made a curse. It says, Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, being made a curse for us. For it is written, curse is everyone that hangeth on the tree. So at this hour, on that time, Jesus was made to be seen for us. And remember, he was experiencing the consequences of sin. 
or wages of sin. He is 100% human. He was in terrible pain and suffering. He, he, he was in agony. I know every one of us experienced pain. Sometimes even a little pain we cannot tolerate. If you experience toothache, it doesn't no, compare to the suffering of Christ. Abdominal pain, headache, is nothing. Fracture, nothing. Childbearing, nothing to compare. Cancer pain, it's nothing to compare of what our Lord Jesus was suffering on that time. You know, Jesus Christ was able to uh, take that pain. He was able to, you know, tolerate that just to save us. But the worst thing that uh, happened to him is that Jesus was separated from God from that time. The protection, the presence of his father was not there. That is why he said in a loud voice. Remember, he was crying. A cried voice. He said, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani. My God, my God, why thou hast forsaken me? Remember, when, you, when we are in pain, sometimes we can tolerate the pain. But if our loved ones is not beside us, the one who really we trust, the one that we really depend on is not beside us. That's one we cannot bear. Amen. That's that we cannot bear. And imagine from eternity, eternity past, Jesus was with his father. And this is the only time that he was separated from his father to receive the punishment of pain that we deserve. So, brother and sister, remember this time, you know, what God, what Jesus did to us is not like, don't take it for granted. Amen. So before you do sin, or we do our sin, remember what he did. Remember the suffering and agony that he, or the, the God has to give just for us. Amen. Amen. Uh, how's everyone doing? Uh, um, it's the first uh, saying, uh, uh, fifth saying, uh, I thirst. Uh, in John 19:28, uh, Bible says, "After this, Jesus, knowing that all things were now accomplished, that the uh, Scripture might be fulfilled, said, 'I thirst.' It is near the end of Jesus' life. He senses it. He was hung on the cross for six hours. Now, it has become hard for Jesus to even get a breath. Uh, hung from his arms, he must." pull himself up each time he wants to breathe. His shoulders ache, his 
smiled, sparks, he's exhausted. And, and yet, he does not want to die without a final word. He asks for something to drink to wet his lips for his final effort. After this, Jesus, knowing that all things were now accomplished, uh, that the scripture might be fulfilled, said, I thirst. Now there was set a vessel full of vinegar, and they filled a sponge with vinegar, put it upon his up, and put it to his mouth. That's in John 19, 28-29. Um, the fulfillment of scripture, after this, Jesus, knowing that all things were now accomplished, that sacrifice might be fulfilled, say that I thirst again. John 19, 28. What scripture was fulfilled here? Uh, a psalm of lamentation written by David seems to have been fulfilled literally in Jesus. They gave me also gall for, for my meat and my, my thirst. They gave, gave me vinegar to drink in Psalms uh, 69, 21. Apparently, Jesus asked for something to quench his thirst to, in order to fulfill uh, 69, 21. So, uh, the first offering wine, this was the first time Jesus had been offered wine. Both uh, Mark and Matthew observed uh, he was offered bitter wine just prior to being crucified. Matthew read Matthew 27, 34, and Mark 15, 23. Perhaps this was intended as an intoxicant for those about to suffer pain. A group of Jerusalem women as, a, as an act of piety provided for a condemned man a vessel of wine containing a, a grain of frank, uh, frankincense to numb him. Uh, Jesus refuses to drink this uh, he has committed himself in the Father, in Father to offer himself as a sacrifice to attempt to lessen the pain of this sacrifice would have somehow uh, been going back on this commitment. Uh, the second offering of wine vinegar, Pascha, uh, the offering of something to quench his thirst after hanging on the cross for some time in a separate incident now there, there was set a vessel full of vinegar, and they filled the spans of vinegar and put it upon his up and put it to his mouth. It's in John nineteen twenty nine, uh, wine vinegar uh, didn't have any alcohol left, uh, but but was sour wine that had turned to vinegar. Wine is made from uh, grape juice. Uh, yes, uh, yes, a fermentation causes sugar to be transformed into alcohol. Uh, which continues to until the alcohol content reaches about 11% to 12%. Uh, wine vinegar, on the other hand, uh, is made uh, by the action of acetic acid uh, bacteria on alcohol to produce acetic acid. Since the bacteria that cause this uh, reaction are aerobic, uh, they uh, Required that the wine be uh, exposed to oxygen to order to form vinegar. Uh, what is a container of wine vinegar doing on Golgotha that day? Uh, it is uh, Pascha, a uh, drink popular with soldiers of the Roman army, uh, made by diluting sour vinegar, wine vinegar with uh, water. 
it was inexpensive, uh, considered more thirst quenching than water alone, uh, prevented scurvy, uh, killed uh, harmful uh, bacteria in, in the water, and the vinegary taste made bad, uh, excuse me, bad smelling uh, water more palatable. Uh, all over the empire, uh, Pasca was the soldier's drink of choice. The soldiers had uh, brought Pasca to sustain them during their crucifixion duty. Now, they weren't getting drunk on it, uh, just using it to quench their own thirst. Uh, a man like no other. Uh, what was it like to watch Jesus slow death? Perhaps it had impressed the soldiers with something like Peter's words. Who did not sin, uh, neither was guile found in his mouth. Who, when uh, he was reviled, reviled not again. When he suffered, he threatened not, but committed himself to him that judges uh, righteously. In uh, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 22 to 23. Uh, Peter uh, concludes this uh, passage with something, uh, however, that the soldier and did not yet know, echoing the words of suffering servant passage of uh, Isaiah 53. Who, who is of self uh, bear our sins in his own body? On the tree, the, the we being dead to sins should live unto righteousness uh, by whose stripes you were held. So in Peter 2.24, the Pascha offered by a soldier in his pants that day was an act of mercy to the one who was bringing God's mercy to all humankind. Uh, receiving the Pascha, uh, John tells us that Jesus actually drank some of the vinegary uh, from the sponge. When Jesus, therefore, had received the vinegar, he said, it is finished. He bowed his head, gave up the ghost, John 19.30. Uh, for a few seconds, at, at least, Jesus sucked the Pasca from, from the sponge. Uh, he, he did not drink lo long enough to slake what must have been moderate to severe dehydration from loss of blood, exposure to the elements and the necessity of gasping for breath through his mouth. The end was near, so he drank only enough to moisten his parched uh, throat so that his last words of triumph might be uh, heard across the hilltop of Golgotha. Uh, what does this word tell us? Uh, what, what does the uh, fifth saying words say to us, uh, I see that three things that this uh, word reminds of us. Number one, uh, Jesus' physical humil hum humanity. Uh, first and probably of greatest importance, uh, Jesus' word, I thirst, uh, reminds us of Jesus' physical nature, his humanity. Uh, this was no play acting on the cross, a divine being, uh, pretending to uh, undergo a, a physical act of torture that could not touch him. Uh, this was uh, tangible physical suffering of which extreme thirst is the, is the one element most of us can readily identify with 
from our personal experience, oh, yes, no. there was a heresy afoot in the Hellenistic world that Jesus did really come to fle in flesh and blood, much less die a gruesome physical death on the cross. A flesh was of the evil realm. They believed and, and could never be holy. Only spirit was capable of, of the divine. So Jesus didn't really die. He only uh, appeared to, he was only pretending. And that said, uh, Docetism and Gnosticism. Uh, the apostle John was combating an early from, from of this uh, heresy in his letters. Hereby know ye the spirit of God Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ is, is come in the flesh is of God. And every spirit that Jesus is come in the flesh is of God. And every spirit that confesses not that Jesus Christ is come in the flesh is not of God. And this is the spirit of Antichrist, uh, whereof ye have a heart that it should come. And even now already is it in the world so 1, 1 John 4, 22 to 23. For many deceivers are entered into the world who confess that not that Jesus Christ is come in the flesh. This is a deceiver and an antichrist. Yes. 2 John 7. Uh, Jesus' uh, fifth word, I thirst, reminds us that Jesus died in the flesh for us and for our sins. Number two, uh, Jesus' awareness of scripture, uh, second I thirst, reminds us of Jesus' extensive knowledge of the prophetic uh, scriptures concerning his suffering and death and his willingness to fulfill each of them to the letter. Uh, the best known passage, of course, is the servant's song from Isaiah 53. Therefore will I divide him a portion with the great and he, sh he shall divide the spoil with the strong because he had poured out his soul unto death and he was numbered with the transgressors and he bare the sins of many and made uh, made intercession for the transgressors since say uh, 53 12 he knew it well and referred to it again and again and again uh, Jesus action to ask for a drink is deliberately prompted by his knowledge of uh, knowledge of uh, scripture and determination to fulfill it. After this, Jesus knowing that all things were now accomplished, so the scripture might be fulfilled, say it, I thirst, John 19, 28. Number three, uh, Jesus' determination to complete his task. Third, Jesus said, I thirst to strengthen himself and ease his throat so that he might cry out his final words from the cross with a loud voice. He was summoning himself to bring it all to completion. Thank you, church. Amen. Are we glad we're saved? <clears throat> so this is the sixth saying.
of the last saying on the, on the cross, the Lord Jesus Christ uttered the word, uh, it is finished. Uh, none of this is the most important, I would say, or the most significant of what he said in the cross. It is finished. It is found only in the Gospel of John chapter 19 and verse 30. In the four gospel, you can only see this in the book of John. In the book of John chapter 19 verse 30, it says, When Jesus therefore had received the vinegar, he said, It is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up the ghost. According to the Bible scholar, this loud cry may have been the very last word that John records. He spoke it, it out loud, it is finished. He was declaring the whole world that the work that God the Father set out for him is done. You can see that in uh, John chapter 4 verse 34. So uh, let's go on this. Uh, let's find what's the meaning, uh, the common use, and the significance of this word. It is finished. Let's go with the, the meaning of this. The word, it is finished. It is an English translation of the Greek word, tetelestai which was the last thing Jesus said before dying on the cross. So, tetelestai comes from the verb telio, which means to bring an end, to complete, and to accomplish. It is a crucial word because it signifies the successful end to a particular course of action. So in our day and age, we could use the word, it is finished when someone, let's say someone reached the top of Mount Everest, you could say, it is finished. Or something like, uh, you know, uh, a marathon. If someone runs in a five mile uh, K, when they're done in their finish, uh, in the finish line, you say, it is finished, you know. Um, the word, means more than just I survived in our modern world. It means it, I did exactly what I set out to do. So, uh, but again, there's more here than the verb itself. Titelestai is in a perfect tense in Greek that signifies because uh, because uh, it's it speaks of an action which has been completing in the past with result continuing into the present. It's different from the past tense which look back to an event and says this happened. The perfect tense adds the idea that this happened and it's in effect today. God, the Lord Jesus Christ, paid it all and for salvation was done in the cross, but again, is still continuing it in today. Salvation are still available for those people who wants to receive it. Amen. So, uh, 
When Jesus cried out, it is finished, he mean it was finished in the past, it's still finished in the present, and it will remain finished in the future. Amen. Note one other thing. He did not say, I am finished. There's a difference between I am finished and the word, it is finished. Amen. Yeah, so uh, he meant it was finished, yeah. And for what would imply that he died for something? So the Lord Jesus Christ died not defeated or not exhausted, but rather than he cried out, it is finished, meaning I successfully completed the work I came to do. So, so uh, the word tetelestai um, in a single world word uh, in a Greek, something that someone is boasting, something like, you know, um, it's regarded as a perfect of oratory. And when you say it is finished, um, it is something that uh, it contained for our God who died on the cross. It contained the ground of, for a believer's assurance. In the word, it discovered the sum of all the joy and the very spirit of all divine consolation. So um, let's go look on what is a common use of the word, it is finished. And every Jewish person there would have instantly recognized this word as an equivalent of a Hebrew praise that was used in the Old Testament sacrificial system. Each year on the, the Jewish holiday called the Day of Atonement, a high priest would enter into the temple and makes a special sacrifice for the sin of the people of Israel that was in the Old Testament. As soon as the priest had killed the animal and sprinkled the, the blood, he would come out or emerge from the place of sacrifice and declare the waiting crowd, and it is to say in Hebrew word, it is finished. In this sacrifice system, all sins of Israel were symbolically placed on the lamb that was killed and punished in their behalf. But the Bible teach, teaches that this sacrificial system was never really complete or finished because the sacrifice of the lamb was imperfect and temporary. But when Jesus died on the cross, he became the perfect and final sacrifice for all sin. And the book of Hebrews describes how Jesus was ultimately the Lamb of God. And by his death and sacrifice, the works of forgiveness was finally complete. So uh, it is also used in the New Testament by a servant. When a servant completes a day's work or uh, is finished uh, a job, he tells to his master, Tetelestai. This was to signal that whatever that he was assigned to do was now completed. The Lord Jesus Christ, in his last word, he was communicating that the work that he came into this world is finished or done. To have a mankind's salvation was completed in his work 
on the cross. We don't need to add anything, no addition or, you know, works that's necessary to be done for our salvation. As it says in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8 and 9, that for by grace you are saved through faith and not of yourself. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. So uh, it is a shout of victory from our Lord Jesus Christ. It is also used by, you know, a common like accountant or a merchant. Um, maybe the most common use of Tetelestai in Jesus' days was in debt collection. When a person finally paid off the debt or a loan in our world in a term, they will issue a receipt that was stamped with the word Tetelestai which means that their debt was paid in full. So this was verification that they were no longer responsible of any debt, that everything they owed was completely and permanently paid for. The Bible says that our sin created a debt to God and no one that we could never pay back our own, even in Isaiah. It tells that our righteousness is a filthy rags, you know, in the front of God. So our righteousness, our good works won't bring us to heaven. Right. Only the wonderful works that Christ done in the cross. When Jesus died, he paid off our debt, our debt of sin once and for all. And it can, you know, in the book of Hebrews, he can describe how the finality of Jesus uh, did that uh, for the payment of our sin. So, uh, as we see the meaning, the uh, common use, uh, we'll just go a little bit on the, uh, you know, the significance of the phrase, it is finished. A lot of things that you could actually use that word, especially, you know, but I'm just going to use the three things here. So uh, one of the significance that I uh, had here is the prophecies of the scripture had been completed. As we can see in Genesis, you know, uh, the plan of salvation before the creation. Uh, as the song, they were just saying that, you know, the they already planned before the man fall. So they already had that. So in, in a prophecy, one of the prophecy, you know, when Satan was uh, head, Bruce, it says in Genesis uh, 3 verse, uh, oh wait, in, in um, the seed of a woman that was crushed of the head of serpent found in Genesis chapter 3 verse 15, I will put enmity between thee and a woman, and between thy seed and her seed shall bruise thy head, and shall bruise his heel. So before, you know, uh, remember Satan always used lie, and that was the fall of man. And I know that uh, the Lord already knew, and he planned that the Lord Jesus Christ had to, to die, had to bruise the, the head of the serpent. Even in, uh, in Isaiah chapter 53, verse 5, 
uh, says, but he was wounded for our transgression. He was bruised for our iniquities that the chastisement of our peace was upon him and with his stripe we are healed. So the prophecy is fulfilled through the Lord Jesus Christ when he went to the cross and, and died for our sin. And in same also in uh, Isaiah, he was oppressed. The same thing in, in verse 7 in chapter 53. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He is brought as a lamb to the slaughter, and he was a sheep before her shearers. It's dumb, so he, he opened not his mouth. So these are the prophecy that was fulfilled in the Old Testament. The second significance is the judgment of sin was complete. Another work finished on the cross was the judgment and punishment of sin. Of sin necessary for our redemption. If you go back to the Garden of Eden, after Adam and Eve sinned, God covered them with garments from the skin of animals in Genesis chapter 3, verse 21. And to Adam also and to his wife did the Lord God make coats of skin and cloth them. So, you know, to remove a skin from an animal, you must kill it to do so. By doing this, God established a principle that something or someone had to die for sin to be covered or dealt with. The killing of the animal to cover the sin of Adam and Eve foreshadows the sacrifice required in the law to cover the Israelite sins. And ultimately, this pointed to the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ on the cross to cover our sin and remove them completely. So because of our sin, a price needed to be paid to satisfy the judgment sin require. When Jesus was on the cross, God placed on him the sins of the world, and by doing that, it fulfilled the requirement of justice. And we were reminded in the Isaiah chapter 53. Um, verse 5 and 6. When we knew that our iniquity was laid on Jesus and he became the once and for all sacrifice needed to meet the demand of God's justice. The last one, the third one, significance is the forgiveness of sin was made available through the shedding of blood. So, uh, in fact, the law requires that nearly everything be cleansed with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness. That's in Hebrews chapter, verse, uh, chapter 9, verse 22. So, by Jesus dying on the cross and shedding his blood, he proved the forgiveness of sin because of the judgment of sin and the payment of sin, his blood, were bought complete. Jesus could say, it is finished. So, uh, in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 7, you can see the redemption through his blood. It says, that in whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sin according to the riches of his grace. And in 1 Peter, it's redeemed by the precious blood. It says in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 18 and 19, For as much we know, we know that you were not redeemed by corruptible things as silver and gold from your vain conversation received by your... Uh, traditions from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ as a lamb, of, lamb without blemish and without spot. J 
Jesus paid it all. He gave his life for our salvation. Are we glad that the Lord Jesus Christ paid it all? Thank you so much for this time, and uh, we thank again the Lord Jesus Christ for what he did to us. I know, right? Good evening, church. Hope everyone is still okay for one more, I hope. By God's grace, we're all here, safe and sound, and those listening as well from home. Okay. So... small I'm humble um, so this last saying the seventh saying of Jesus father into thy hands I commend my spirit uh, I just wanted to talk about the meaning if you just go to the next slide that would be the outline sort of of this the intro talk about the medical background of this whole thing Jesus last moments um, the surrender of this and con the conclusion Next slide, please. So can we all just stand and just one more time to stretch out your legs a little bit in reverence of God's word, just with the last saying. Can we all read it together? It's on the, there if, um, if you can see it. Um, I don't know if you can. Thinking about it now, sorry. Should have flip-flopped it. But I'll give you a second to get it in your Bibles if you can't see it. Okay, so everyone's there. Say amen. 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 Let's read it together, Luke 23, 44 to 46. And it was about the sixth hour, and there was a darkness over all the earth until the ninth hour. And the sun was darkened, and the veil of the temple was rent in the midst. And when Jesus had cried with a loud voice, he said, Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit. And having said thus, he gave up the ghost. Let's pray real quick. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, just thank you for just being here together again. For all the men that just uh, went before me, Lord, just thank you for their life. And for all those that are here listening, all those who are listening uh, virtually, Lord, just bless all our lives. Bless the message that I'm about to say, Lord, and help everyone to hear and to understand and to uh, keep it into their heart. And just help us have a good rest of this night and help us keep us safe. And we love you. Thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. You can all be seated. Thank you for standing. So the next slide, we're going to talk about the medical background of crucifixion. So as some of you may know, I am a physical therapist by background, so I have a little bit of medical knowledge. So I want to just kind of talk about the crucifixion, how brutal it was, it painful the, the methods of the execution in the ancient world was. It involved nailing of the victim's hands and the feet to the wooden cross, causing excruciating pain and suffering. Of course, getting a paper cut is very painful, so how much more a nail just like that? Uh, not to mention the difficulty breathing when needed to take a gasp for air. You would need to you know, pull on those nailed hands and push on those legs to take a great gasp of air because you can't take a breath this way. So you have to pull up, and that is also very excruciating. Just taking a breath now that we take for granted today is, was extremely hard for Jesus. And um, that's why to help speed up the process, some Romans would break the legs of those who were on the cross because that way they couldn't stand up straighter and that would 
not be able to pull themselves up, not be able to breathe, and therefore die faster. So Jesus endured the immense physical and emotional torment, ultimately leading to his death on the cross, as confirmed by medical details, such as when the soldier pierced his side with a spear, blood and water flowed out, indicating that he had suffered a cardiac rupture, his heart burst, and pleural effusion. There was like a lot of swelling and a lot of fluids in his heart and lung space area. So that detail confirms that he did actually die on the cross. And if we go to John 19, 32 to 34, uh, it's another fulfilled prophecy that no bone on his body would be broken. And I'm just going to read it real quick since it's here. Uh, then came the soldiers and broke break the legs of the first and of the other which was crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was dead already, they break not his legs, but one of the soldiers with a spear pierced his side and forthwith came and their blood and water. So during the crucifixion, the victim would typically experience hypovolemic shock, which is basically no volume of blood and fluids in the body. It's literally no fluids. That results in like, loss of blood, fluids in the body, and results in a decreased heart rate, low blood pressure, decreased urine output, and he hung on there for several hours and uh, ongoing, undergoing significant physiological stress. Yet even in the midst of his physical agony, Jesus' final words expressed complete trust and surrender to his Father. This is a powerful reminder that even in our own suffering, we can find strength and peace in surrendering our lives to God. So, next slide. Jesus' last moments. In the Gospel of Luke, we read that darkness covered the land from noon until three in the afternoon while Jesus hung on the cross. As he hung there, he cried out, Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit. That was an ultimate act of surrender to God. In this moment, he surrendered his, Jesus surrendered his life, his pain, his struggles, all to, all to his heavenly Father. So through his death, Jesus fulfilled the prophecies of, of the Old Testament and foretold the Messiah who would suffer and die for the sins of humanity. So I have another verse. Isaiah 53, 4 to 5, Surely he hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. Okay. So I have a couple more verses on um, surrender. So the act of surrendering is a crucial part of our Christian faith, as we should all know. You know, in Psalms 31.5, the psalmist writes, Into thy hand I, commend my spirit, I commit my spirit. Thou hast redeemed me, O Lord, God of truth. And this verse echoes Jesus' own words on the cross, demonstrating the importance of surrendering our lives to God. Yeah. Similarly, also in Matthew 26.39, the second part of it, we read that Jesus' prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane, where he surrendered his own will to the Father, saying, Nevertheless, not as I will, but as thou wilt. So I have a like a personal like anecdote of surrendering. So uh, that's not there's not a slide there for that. So so for me, surrendering my life to God was a life changing moment, as is all of you, as I'm uh, you can assume. 
It was after, you know, failed relationships, poorly academically. I just gave my life to God and said, Lord, if you'll ever let me find love, let it be done. Uh, not long after that, after I devoted my life to God more wholly, more in the ministry, more praying, getting my life back together, after my backsliding days, he brought Kimberly Gamotin Sabakahan into my life. God has just continued to bless my life after that, helping me become the doctor of physical therapy that I am today. After I uh, flailed out of school, that's actually very hard to do, at least in my opinion. But, and I also married the girl of my dreams, the virtual, beautiful, virtuous woman of God, Kimberly. Um, also brought into this world the most beautiful uh, baby girl, Serenity Faith. <laughs> hello, hello. And just continue to experience God's blessing and favor through any trial and tribulation that I may be going through my life at any time and will continue to face in my future as well as uh, all of you as well. So it's all thanks to surrendering my life to Jesus Christ. So the next slide would be is uh, significance of surrender. So obviously surrendering to God is not easy. We all know this. It it's, takes a lot of humility, a lot of trust in his plan for our lives. However, when we surrender to God, we allow him to work in our lives, shaping, molding us into the people he wants us to be. In uh, Romans 12, 1 to 2, Paul writes, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that ye present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service, and be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind, that ye may prove what is, what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Okay. When we surrender to God, we allow him to transform our minds and our hearts, renewing us and guiding us his, in his will. So in conclusion, Jesus' last words on the cross Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit. Serve as a reminder to all of us to surrender our lives to God, just as Jesus surrendered to his heavenly Father in his final moments. We too must surrender our lives to God, trusting in his plan for us. It may not be an easy task, it will never will be, but the rewards are immeasurable. When we surrender to God, we allow him to work in our lives, guiding us, transforming us into the people he wants us to be. Let us you know, take inspire, inspiration from Jesus' ultimate acts of surrender, and let's surrender our lives to God today. And I also want to tell you a little funny story as well, because uh, I know a lot of our pastors like to end on funny notes. Um, so there was a man who was struggling with surrendering his life to God. One day, he was driving on a busy highway, and suddenly his car stalled. He tried everything he could think of to get his car started again, but nothing worked. Finally, he got out of the car and prayed, God, if you'll just start my car for me, I'll surrender my life to you right now. Suddenly, the car started, and the man exclaimed, Never mind, God, I got it working again. <laughs> so, of course, the moral of the story is, that surrendering to God, surrendering to God is not a one-time event, but a continual process that requires trust and obedience. Amen. A continual process. Okay, 
So just to close in prayer because I was told to do that. So uh, let us pray. Our most gracious and heavenly Father, Lord, thank you, Lord, for this night. Thank you, Lord, for letting just use me as a vessel to preach your word, Lord, and just to give, uh, just give us spiritual nourishment, Lord, for, for, for this night and for these seven sayings and for the men who have done it already here tonight. Just thank you for their lives, and Lord, just help us to use what we've learned tonight, Lord. Help us to use it every, each and every day of our lives. Help us to continue to uh, mold us to be more like you, Jesus, and help us to live for you and serve you, glorify you more and more each and every day. Help us be a blessing to you and love on you and blessing to others around us, Lord. We love you so much. We thank you so much. We give you all the glory, honor, and praise. We love you and thank you in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. 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 Glory be to God for what we've uh, heard tonight. Amen.